0: Thank you to our producers, Kevin Cartwright and Jaron Epstein, to our board op, Erica Bridgman, and to our guests. And you can speak with us every second and fourth Friday at 2:30 p.m. We look forward to talking with you again. Bye-bye. The East Bay
1: Meditation Center invites you to a day of spiritual practice and discussion with Sylvia Borstein and Larry Yang, two longtime Buddhist practitioners. This event benefits EBMC, a diverse community sharing wisdom teachings and social engagement. Our programs include evening and day long classes and weekly sitting groups. All regular programs are offered on a gift economics basis. This event with Larry Yang and Sylvia Borstein is on Sunday, January 23rd from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. at the Pauly Ballroom on the UC Berkeley campus, 23 MLK Student Union Building, Bancroft Way, and Telegraph Avenue. For advanced tickets, go to eastbaymeditation.org or call 510-735-8734. This event is wheelchair accessible. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. It's a minute past 3 p.m. Up next is cover-to-cover cover open book. Hi, I'm Mark Torres, senior producer of the Pacifica Radio Archives, sitting in for our regular host, Brian DeShazer, and this is From the Vault, our weekly series that brings our history out of the vault and onto the radio. In 1999, the Library Foundation of Los Angeles produced the Big Question series that invited visionary guests to address some of the great questions of our time. Participants ranged from the United States Poet Laureate, Robert Pinsky, Performance artist Laurie Anderson, Professor Dr. Henry Louis Gates Jr., poet and author Bell Hooks, and Pacifica's resident physicist Dr. Michio Kaku. One of the most illuminating presentations of the series was presented by author and professor of geography and physiology, Jared Diamond, who took on the question, what do the collapse of past societies teach us about our own future? Not too surprisingly, the observations brought up in this lecture ring as true today as it did in 1999. He would, in the same year in 1999, win the National Medal of Science. Jared Diamond would go on to use the material he presented in this lecture in his 2005 book, Collapse How Societies Choose to Fail or Succeed. Before that, Jared Diamond gained worldwide attention in 1997 following the release of his third popular science book, Guns, Germs, and Steel, The Fates of Human Society, which became a bestseller and would win numerous awards, including the Pulitzer Prize. This lecture was originally broadcast in the Pacifica Radio Archive series, Voices of Pacifica, and is now rebroadcast for the first time here on From the Vault.
2: Welcome to the Voices of Pacifica. I'm Denise Douse. The fifth lecture from the Big Questions series features Jared Diamond, professor of physiology and author of groundbreaking and Pulitzer Prize-winning books, Guns, Germs, and Steel, The Fates of Human Societies. Professor Diamond addresses the question, what do collapses of past societies teach us about our own future?
0: When the Easter Islanders got into trouble, there was nobody to whom they could turn for help. And there was also nowhere where they could run away, in the same way that today, If we on Earth get into severe trouble, there's no other place in the galaxy to which we can run away, and there are no other beings out there in the galaxy who can come help us.
2: The Big Question Lecture Series, produced by the Library Foundation of Los Angeles and curated by Louise Steinman, is a celebration of writing, reading, and public debate. It features visionary thinkers in the arts, sciences, and humanities who are asking new questions, challenging accepted theories and reframing ancient dialects. Jared Diamond began his scientific career in physiology and expanded into evolutionary biology and biogeography. In the following speech, Professor Diamond cites the mysterious Easter Island Society, among others, as examples of collapsed societies that can teach us about our future.
0: What I'm going to talk about is a romantic mystery that began to fascinate me when I was a teenager and that probably has fascinated most of you for a long time, Uh, namely the mystery about the causes of collapses of past civilizations. And just to set the background, I'll show monuments of two collapsed civilizations. Why is it that so many famous past civilizations Um, did collapse, and by collapse I mean a drastic decrease in human population numbers, um, or else a drastic decrease in in complexity of political or economic social organization over a large area. Well, the subject is a romantic mystery, but of course it's more than that, because some of these past societies collapsed for what we now appreciate are environmental reasons. And so these past collapses may be relevant to what we do with the environmental problems facing us today. Problems such as the impending end of the tropical rainforests, the extinction crisis, the doubling of world population, global warming, and so on. What we now risk in the next generation is not the risk of the nuclear holocaust that hung over us for the last several decades, but instead the risk of an environmental holocaust. Where can we get guidance? Has it happened before? Yes, it has happened before. Particularly within the last decade or so, overwhelming evidence has emerged from the disciplines of archaeology and other disciplines that some of these romantic mystery, some of these collapses were self-inflicted ecological disasters, suicides of societies inadvertently destroying their resource base, similar to the problem that we face today. And it happened in the past, even though in the past there were far fewer people than there are today, and those people of the past packed less potent destructive technology than we wield today. The examples include the collapse of Fertile Crescent civilizations, the collapse of Mycenaean Greece, the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, of the Polynesian Society on Easter Island, the fall of classic Lowland Maya civilization, of Ancrolat, and of the Anasazi in the U.S. Southwest. But, This turns out to be a complicated problem. It's of course not the case that all societies are doomed to collapse. There are parts of the world where societies have lasted for thousands of years without any signs of collapse. For example, in Japan and Java and Tonga, and there are other areas where societies have collapsed. How do we explain the difference? There are fragile environments, and there are robust environments. It's often difficult to distinguish a self-inflicted environmental disaster from a collapse of society resulting from external climate changes. For example, in our Southwest, there's been a long-standing argument whether the end of the Anasazi was because of a climate change or what they were doing themselves and also collapses that were ultimately for environmental reasons can be masked by conquest by neighbors. That's to say an environmentally weakened society um, can get so weak to the point where it's then conquered by neighbors. And so you're not sure whether the fundamental cause of a collapse was those barbarians walking in as at the time of the fall of the Western Roman Empire, or was simply the barbarians taking advantage of a society that had already been weakened for reasons of ecological suicide. And then finally, collapses in fragile environments can affect societies in more robust environments. Those are some of the reasons why this problem this fascinating and important problem, is also a complicated one. And therefore, this afternoon, I'm going to proceed with you stepwise. We'll first consider collapses of societies on remote islands where there are no problems of neighbors walking in to confound the interpretation. And then we'll go to some isolated continental societies where, again, the confounding issues of neighbors are not acute and then finally we'll get to societies embedded in the continents all this may sound depressing at this point you may wonder why on earth did i come in here on a beautiful sunday afternoon to hear about this awful stuff about how societies collapsed but i want to assure you this talk is not going to be a downer it will be a medium upper because (laughs) at the end i will conclude with some upbeat messages, empowering messages about what you can actually do all about it. So my first example, then, is going to be about what was really one of the most isolated societies in the world, people living in a moderately fragile environment, namely the Polynesian Society on Easter Island, the most remote, habitable scrap of land in the world. Easter Island, the furthest eastern outpost of Polynesia, lies about 2,000 miles west of South America and nearly a thousand miles from the nearest inhabited Polynesian Island, so it's really isolated. And Easter Island receives 40 inches of rain per year. It's wetter than Los Angeles, but still dry enough to be fragile. Well there has been a famous romantic mystery about these giant statues of Easter Island. Uh, The island has something like 800 statues weighing up to 80 tons and there's a statue that was carved but never put up weighing something like 200 tons. These statues were carved in the crater of an extinct volcano And then somehow transported miles and miles overland um, to be erected upright on platforms overlooking the ocean. And all this was accomplished by Polynesians with only stone tools, no metal tools, no machines, no power sources, except their own muscles. For a long time, it's been a mystery then how on earth did they transport these statues? How on earth? If you have only your own muscles, do you get something weighing 60 pounds, 60 tons, into a vertical position? And why did they do it? Well, when Easter Island was, quotes, discovered, on quotes, by Europeans in 1722, the Polynesians of Easter Island were in the process of pulling down their own statues that they had erected at so much effort. How high and how why and who erected them. This is a romantic mystery that has engaged Tor Heyerdahl and really many other thinkers. Well, this remained a romantic mystery, and it's only within the last 15 years that the ecological factors underlying the collapse of Easter Island society um, became apparent. Um, we've learned a lot from, about the history of Easter Island from the work of paleobotanists those those of botanists who figure out what plants were growing in an area in the remote past by by looking at pollen, ancient layers of pollen that you can date, and the Cradle Lake in the volcano of Easter Island. This lake, mud settles down in the lake, and the mud that's deepest is mud that settled down longest ago. So if you go down with a core and lift out a core of mud. And then identify pollen grains in the mud. The pollen grains far down are pollen that fell in the remote past, and then the pollen in the mud on top is pollen that fell most recently. And then you can date the mud layers by radiocarbon. So in that way, paleobotanists have been able to figure out what was growing on Easter Island not only in the last century, which you know, but 10,000 years ago, 20,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago, and 700 years ago. And also a lot of insight has come into our understanding of Easter Island from the work of archaeologists looking at human habitation sites on Easter Island. Well, those slides that I showed you, uh, what you saw in those slides was Easter Island as it looks today, which is basically a treeless wasteland, a dry grassland with no native tree species whatsoever. There is no native tree species on Easter Island, or at least surviving on Easter Island. It's a barren island. It's the last place that you would have expected a great civilization to arise. It doesn't even have any native land birds um, on it. Biologically, it's perhaps the poorest island in the Pacific. How on earth did a great civilization rise there, and what do they do to nourish themselves? Well. The discoveries of paleobotanists from these cores in the volcanic crater Lake have been an eye-opener. It turns out that 10,000 years ago, Easter Island, it was not a barren grassland. It was covered by a subtropical forest in which was growing the largest palm tree in the world, a gigantic palm tree even bigger than the Chilean wine palm, the biggest palm tree today. This extinct palm tree of Easter Island had a trunk diameter of something like six or eight feet. And, the, uh, and this subtropical forest on the island had gigantic dandelion, dandelion trees 20 feet high. It was a really lush forest. And there were birds, there were land birds on the island. And because the island was remote and there were no mammalian predators on the island, it was a great place for nesting seabirds. There were something like 35 species of seabirds petrels and terns and shearwaters that were nesting on Easter Island, identified by their bones which archaeologists have discovered in the archaeological layers below the first layers of human habitation. The first signs of humans on Easter Island are about 500 AD, that's when Easter was settled by Polynesians coming from the the West. When the Polynesians arrived in this subtropical forest, the Polynesians are and were farmers, so they began to clear trees in order to plant gardens and feed themselves. Um, they also were cutting down the vegetation for firewood for their cooking, and then also to build canoes and to go out to sea and fish. They were cutting down trees, particularly big trees, trees big enough to um, cons- to make dugout canoes out of. There was a lot for them to eat on Easter Island. The gigantic palm tree had fruits, so they were eating the palm fruits. And those 35 species of breeding seabirds, it was easy to get the adults on their nest or to get the eggs or to get the babies. And there were also native land birds on Easter Island to eat. So the people prospered and their numbers increased. The first settlement by canoe may have been only by one canoe of drifting or sailing from western Polynesia, maybe a few dozen people arrived, um, but the population increased on Easter Island until by the year 1600 AD, the estimated population, which you can estimate from the number of house sites, radiocarbon dated house sites around Easter Island, population had risen to close to 10,000 people. When you pack 10,000 people, 10,000 farmers, into an island of 40 square miles in a relatively dry environment the forest is going to have to be chopped down um, to provide enough gardens to feed those people. And the work of paleobotanists shows that by about the year 1600 AD, all the pollen from the palm trees and the giant tree dandelions and these other original trees, it was all gone. By 1600 AD, the forest was gone and the species that grew in the forest were extinct The pollen is instead the pollen of Polynesian crops and introduced grasses. Well, when the people had canoes, they could go out to sea far offshore and catch things like porpoises, harpoon porpoises. So archaeologists have found out that in the oldest habitation sites, in Easter Island, what are the bones that they're eating? The bones that are thrown away in the kitchen midgens are bones of porpoises and other fish that live far offshore, which the people were evidently getting in the canoes that they were constructing out of these big trees. By the time they've chopped down all the trees, um, they have no means of constructing canoes to go out to sea. And so, of course, the bones of porpoises and other pelagic fish drop out of the diet. By that time, they've also exterminated all the populations of seabirds breeding on the island itself, the sea breeding seabirds, are now confined to an offshore, rocky stack. Every single species of land bird on Easter Island um, has been exterminated. And all that has consequences. How do the people erect these 80-ton statues? Well, first of all, how, if you carved an 80-ton statue in a volcanic crater seven miles from the coast, 500 feet uphill, do you, with your own muscles, carry this statue seven miles away over the lid of the volcano to the coast? Turns out that, that um, the Polynesians used these big trees as rollers, placing them as rollers and probably greasing them with sweet potato, and then then attaching rope that they made from the fiber of these native trees to the statues, and then experiments have shown that you can, hundreds of people, when you attach hundreds of people by rope um, with rollers to a statue of dozens and dozens of tons, they can still drag it. And then as to how to erect the statue, um, when you've got it down to the coast and you've got the 70-ton statue lying on its back. You use a log and you put a big log under the neck of the statue and you prop it. You use dozens of people to prop it up half an inch and more people then put pebbles in under the statue and then you prop it up with this log another half an inch until you've got the thing up to a 45 degree position and then with ropes that you made from the forest trees you hold the thing back so that it won't tip over and tip it a little far forward and you've now got it in a vertical position. Well, in the years, that was what they were doing as long as there were trees and sources of rope. But as of 1600, when there were no more trees and no more sources of rope, they didn't have rollers and they didn't have rope. So there was no way that they could erect the statues anymore. And Easter Island today uh, looks like a statue carving factory where the workers walked off in the middle of the shift. There were unfinished statues still present in the quarries unfinished statues between the volcano and the coast abandoned when people ran out of logs that was consequence number one consequence number two of the end of the forest um, is that people had run out of the obvious source of firewood so what do they do to cook to light their fires they're reduced and this archaeologist can identify by looking in the horse. Um, the debris that they're burning is the debris of agricultural waste. They're picking up scraps of sugarcane leaves and other agricultural waste. And that's all that they've got to cook um, to uh, light fires and cook with because they don't have trees um, The trees that were formerly protecting the soil are no longer there, so there's massive soil erosion. They're losing topsoil, and agricultural productivity has decreasing. And finally, because they don't have trees, they can no longer construct canoes. They can't go out to sea. They can't get porpoises. They've exterminated all the birds. What are they gonna do for protein? There's only one large animal left on the island as a source of protein. And that is, as you might guess, Homo sapiens. So Easter Island society collapsed in an orgy of cannibalism Um, when Europeans arrived and started getting stories from the Easter Islanders in the 18th and 19th century. The worst insult that an Easter Islander could give to another Easter Islander, uh, if you wanted to make someone furious beyond control, uh, you said to the person the flesh of your mother sticks between my teeth, (laughs) meaning I have just eaten your mother. Well, that was the epidemic of cannibalism. And the former priest class that had controlled the island was replaced by a warrior class. Easter Island, today, the ground of Easter Island is still covered by the spear points um, that are the legacies of the collapse period when Easter Island society collapsed in an epidemic of fighting. And the rival clans then pulled down each other's statues until by the early part of the 19th century all these 700 statues that had been carved and erected at such great effort had been pulled down and destroyed by the islanders themselves. With the decline in agricultural productivity and the end of large protein sources except for people there was a population crash on Easter Island the population declined from something like 10,000 people down to about 2,000 people, and this collapse was irreversible. With the forest gone, there was no possibility of rebuilding Easter Island society. A few years ago I wrote an article for Discover Magazine on the collapse of Easter Island society, and of all the articles that I've written for Discover, um, that was the one I think that engaged people the most. I think you can understand why. People were grabbed by Easter Island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean as a metaphor for planet Earth today. Easter is really isolated in the ocean. When the Easter Islanders got into trouble, there was nobody to whom they could turn for help, and there was also nowhere where they could run away. In the same way that today, If we on Earth get into severe trouble, um, there's no other place in the galaxy to which we can run away, and there are no other beings out there in the galaxy who can come help us. I often ask myself, and people ask me this question, what do you think the Easter Islanders were saying when they cut down the last palm tree? When, When the forest was almost all gone and one palm tree was there and they cut it down. Didn't they know what they were doing? What did they say when they cut down the last palm tree? And I can only imagine. My guess is that the Easter Islanders then say things pretty similar to what you hear today. Jobs or trees, what do you care about? Us loggers and our children or trees? They probably said, these trees are our private property. Leave it to the private sector get big government off our backs the chief should have no say in this or they might say you're predicting an environmental disaster but your environmental models are untested we need more research let's not act hastily or perhaps they said technology will solve all our problems in the future just as it has in the past we're making better and better stone tools we don't need trees i'm just uh, I would guess that those things were said on Easter Island as they chopped down the last palm, palm, palm tree, uh, just as they're said in Northern California as the loggers work on chopping down the, the big redwoods. So, there we have a collapse of a really isol- of the most isolated society in the world, Easter Island, an irreversible collapse. The society survived, but with a drastic decrease in numbers and a collapse of political and social organization. Thank you.
2: You've been listening to a lecture by Professor of Physiology and author Jared Diamond. The following are excerpts from Jared Diamond's audience discussion.
1: Yes, right there.
0: Some societies uh, are relatively good at managing their resources over a long period of time. Let's hear more about them. Sure, some of the societies that have been successful, um, I'll give you two examples of, of local village societies and then two examples of state societies. Places where there has been no ecological collapse, although you might have expected one, are in the highlands of New Guinea. New Guineans have been practicing intensive agriculture for up to 7,000 years, and really intensive agriculture for 1,000 years, in in the densely populated valleys of central New Guinea, all of the forest has been knocked down, chopped down, why did New Guineans not drive themselves to a point of extinction? Because at the village level they developed sustainable forestry based on casuarina trees so that every village in the New Guinea Highlands has its own casuarina grove that provides its firewood and its construction timber. Similarly, the Polynesian island of Tikopea, a tiny island of, with only a few hundred people on it, settled for 1,500 years, managed to avoid total deforestation on an Easter Island pattern by a micromanagement of the whole island. Two examples of state societies that successfully solved, their, solved at least their forestry problems. Germany in the 19th century began to micromanage its forests so that my German friends tell me that they are not permitted to chop down a tree on the grounds of their summer house because in Germany whether you can chop down a tree is a matter for the state to decide not for you to decide and any of you who have flown over over Germany or been in Germany know what a large fraction of this densely populated country is devoted to forests and similarly Japan in the 18th century the Japanese saw that they were in the process of destroying their forests so they adopted state policies that have conserved conserved Japanese forests very well again the the Inca civilization of the Andes apparently adopted a re-afforestation policy. So there are state societies that had good policies, and there are village societies, too. Thank you.
1: And that does it for this week's From the Vault. We wish regular host Brian DeShazer a speedy recovery from shoulder surgery. Get well, Brian. We are streaming and podcasting online at fromthevaultradio.org. Thanks for all the Pacifica listeners who joined our campus campaign and sponsored over 1800 schools with the From the Vault series. For more information about the From the Vault series, call the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or visit us online at pacificaradioarchives.org. From the Vault is presented as part of the Pacifica Radio Archives. Preservation and Access Project, which is supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts, past grants from the Grammy Foundation, and kind donations from you, the listener. A special thank you from the American Archive, funded by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This program was written and produced by Mark Torres and Brian DeShazer. This series is executive produced by the Pacifica Radio Archives and Brian DeShazer. Our theme music is by Ken Drum Holiday. I've been your host, Mark Torres, and thank you for helping keep our history alive. Capitalism hits the fan. You feeling it too? The wily author of Capitalism Hits the Fan, The Global Economic Meltdown, and What to Do About It. Richard Wolff, economist, professor at the University of Massachusetts, visiting professor at the New School in New York City, will be speaking in Berkeley at the Congenial Hillside Club on Sunday evening, January 16th at 7.30. Hosting Richard will be Brian Edwards-Teakert.